grateful. And it truly is a privilege to speak to you. I'm going to be speaking on Romans 10, and the title of my message is The Faith That We Proclaim. And that's actually a quote from the Apostle Paul in this passage. Now, as you're locating Romans 10 on your mobile device or in your Bible, I want you to to multitask with me for a moment, okay? What I'd like you to do is think about that moment when you gave your life to Jesus Christ. Now, for some of you, you may have not done that yet. You may still be searching. We don't want to assume that everyone in here has done that. But if you have done that, I want you to think back. Some of you, it may be a a matter of weeks or months since that decision took place in your life. For others, it may have been what seems like a lifetime ago. So revisit that as as we're uh, reading this passage this morning. The second thing I would like for you to do is envision that person in your life that you were most burdened about coming to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Who is that person? I want to share with you a story of of one person that was important to me, that is important to me, that gave their life to Christ. As parents, when Kimberly and I had our two children, our greatest burden was to see our our children come to faith in Jesus Christ and hopefully at an early age as a result of our influence. And I think if you're a Christian parent, you too share that as one of your top burdens. Well, we had moved to Seattle to plant a church in uh, 1994. Hannah was only four years old, and we settled into a little apartment. It was a time of great upheaval, a lot of anxiety, a lot of transition, and, uh, you know, it was a tough time for us. But one night, we were watching TV, the kids were playing, we were busy doing tasks around the house, and Billy Graham came on. It was a crusade he was doing in North Carolina or something like that, and it was toward the end of the message, and... We were all halfway listening, but at the end, Billy Graham issued an invitation. And you've probably seen his broadcast, most of you, but he issued an invitation, and all these people started flooding down to the front of the stadium. And my daughter was watching this with great interest, and she said, Daddy, why are all those people going down to the front? And uh, I said, well, honey... They're going, to give Jesus, they're going to ask Jesus into their hearts. And Douglas said, he's our little boy, he was a few years older than her, he said, I've asked Jesus into my heart. And then he looked at Hannah and he said, Hannah, you've not asked Jesus into your heart. And her whole countenance changed and she had this sad look on her face and she said, I want Jesus in my heart. So as a family, we went into our bedroom and I began to very simply share with Hannah how she could give her life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you've had that privilege of leading your child to faith. It's a a wonderful, special moment that you remember the rest of your life. But as Hannah listened, we could tell that she wanted to make that decision. And as a little child of four, she believed in her heart and she confessed with her mouth that Jesus Christ was Lord. And in that moment when she prayed and she said, Amen, she hopped up to her feet with the biggest smile on her face. Her, her countenance transformed. And she said, now I have the joy down in my heart. And that was a moment that we'll never forget. Because in that moment, an explosion of the supernatural took place. Hannah was cleansed of her sins and 
washed and renewed by the Holy Spirit. She was made into a new creation by the Father. She was forgiven her sins and declared righteous by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. She was adopted into God's family forever. She was given spiritual gifts so that she could use to encourage the body of Christ and declare Christ to the world. And and she was sealed by the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. All in one simple moment when she believed in her heart and confessed with her mouth that Jesus is Lord. So I want you to picture today that moment in that loved one or that co-worker's life when that will take place. And for some of you, it may have been an event where that happened or it may have been a process over years where you slowly begin to believe and there came a moment when you said, yes, I confess that Jesus is my Lord. Friends, what a wonderful gift that we've been given in salvation. And so as we look at the passage of Scripture today, I'm going to read the whole passage to you we're going to see some of the things that Paul shares with the church, all these believers, both Jews and Gentiles, scattered throughout Rome. He says, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God, and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. He's quoting Leviticus in that, in that portion right there. But the righteousness that is by faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it is in your mouth and in your heart. And he's quoting Moses in Deuteronomy there. And then he says, that is the message concerning the faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, And believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on one they have not believed in, and how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Wow, what a beautiful passage of Scripture. And I think it's important for us as we begin to dig into this a little deeper to see that there's three important themes that Paul lays out for the church. The first one is the relationship of Christ and the law to righteousness. Let's look at uh, one through four again. He talks about uh, his heart's desire being for the Israelites. 
and he talks about that they, are, they don't know the righteousness of God, but they're trying to establish their own. They're not submitting to God's righteousness. And he makes the statement, Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. What does that mean? Christ is the culmination of the law. The Greek word there means end of. And so I thought about this, and I thought a good way of saying that is Christ is the it is finished of the law. You see, the law was there to make people aware that they were sinners. It was also there to hold them accountable for their actions and trying to be right with God, to live in a way that pleased God. But it never got the job done of justifying someone. That's why every year, no matter how well people kept the law, the high priest would take a a spotless animal and would sacrifice it on the behalf of the people, a lamb without blemish, slain for the sins of the people. And what that did was that it was a picture of the coming atonement that God would provide once and for all through his son, Jesus Christ. You remember, those of you that have read the account of the crucifixion, that in in one of the Gospels it says that when Christ said, it is finished, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. What that was signifying is there's no more need for animal sacrifices because the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he made sacrifice for sin and he said, it is finished. Christ fulfilled the law. It always pointed to him. So if somebody used the law to try to be right with God, they could never get it done. It's not possible. Paul said, if you offend in one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. So even if I started living by the law, by my works from this point forward, what do I do about all the rest of my life when I didn't live according to it? That's why a law from God had to be introduced. Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived a perfect life, lived out the law to perfection, and was able in one act of sacrifice to say, it is finished, and the law fulfilled its purpose, and now we have the law of faith and righteousness through Jesus Christ. So that's the first theme that Paul introduces. The second theme is the relationship of the mouth and the heart to salvation. He says it several times there, mouth and heart, mouth and heart. So what's going on there? Well, I think it's important for us to define what it means by heart. You know, we know it's not the organ that beats in our chest and provides the circulation for our system and goes 24-7, hopefully, right? No, Uh, Dallas Willard in his book, Renovation of the Heart, said, Heart, spirit, and will, or their equivalents, are words that refer to one and the same thing. The same fundamental component of the person, the human heart, will, or spirit, is the executive center of a human life. The heart is where decisions and choices are made for the whole person. That is its function. So when you think of the heart, think of the will, the heart, and the spirit being basically one and the same thing. And it's that executive center or the CEO of your life that helps you make decisions. So when Paul's talking about the heart, that's the area that he's talking about. And if we look at this theme, it's played out in Romans 10.8. Look what it says there. The word is near you. 
It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning the faith that we proclaim. He also goes on to say in Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And when you see that word justified, when I was a little kid, this, this helped make it stick. It means just as if I had never sinned. Justified. And it says there in Romans 10, 9 and 10, that with your heart you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And then again in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When, when he talks about the word being near you, we're going to see in a minute that he's actually referring to uh, the book of Deuteronomy where Moses is talking to the people of Israel. And something that I, I didn't think of before I was preparing for this message, you know, when, when Shannon or, or one of your elders or me prepare a message to bring to you, we use the biblical text. That's what we go back to. That's, that's our source. That's the authority that we go back to. Well, the Apostle Paul is going back to the writings of Moses. So it's always been that way. Pastors and teachers are referring to Scripture. He didn't have the New Testament Scripture, but he was referring to the writings of Moses to bring into his message to point us back to what God is trying to tell the people. And so what we see here is that he points back to uh, Exodus, and I'm going to pull that up for us here in just a moment. But um, that's the second thing, is the relationship of the mouth and heart to salvation. The third theme that we see is the relationship of going and preaching to the acceptance of the good news. Think about, I asked you at the beginning of the message to think about when you came to faith in Christ. Who delivered that message to you? Was it a pastor up on a pulpit? Was that the first time you heard about Jesus? Was it a friend? Was it a parent? The bottom line is, the word is close to us, but it takes someone going and preaching. You know, somebody started this church so that it could go into the community and preach the gospel. You are trained as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, where you go into your workplace, your school, any sphere of influence, and you begin to share what Christ has done in your life. There is a relationship between going and preaching. And when you hear Paul preaching, yes, he's talking about when somebody stands up on a pulpit like this, but he's talking about being an ambassador of, declaring, being a herald of the gospel. And he asks the question, and how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Do you think you have beautiful feet? How many of you in here would say you have beautiful feet? I can tell you mine are not beautiful. That's why they're covered up today. I didn't wear flip-flops this morning, although I know I could at Redeemer. Um, I didn't because I, you don't need to see my feet. There's nothing to see there. But Paul says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And so there's a relationship between the going and the proclaiming of the Word of God. So those are the themes we see, the three themes that he brings out. But then we see Paul's motivation. What motivates Paul? He tells us in the first part of 10 what motivates him. He said, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. In another passage in Romans, 
He even makes a statement, I would rather be cut off from God, myself personally, if that meant that all of Israel could be saved. Friends, I can't say that. I wish I could. You know, I wish I could say that. Paul said that. I would, I would rather be cut off from God and all of Israel be saved. And so there's this deep burden that Paul has. They're his people. And I think it's important to see that he's motivated that all Israel would be saved, but also that everyone would be saved. Now let's ask an honest question for a moment. In your daily life, how often does it come up in your thought process about a burden for somebody in your life to be saved? I can tell you that right now, Kimberly and I are praying um, for one, one of our, our children and their relationship they're, they're in, that the person that they're in relationship would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's a burden. It's something we pray about probably personally on a daily basis and as a couple, is that that person would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because we, we know the difference that that can make in that person's life. We know the transformation. And so Paul is motivated by this deep burden and passion, and it, it begs the question, what's your passion level? If you had a meter right now, what's your passion level for the lost people in your life? What's my passion level? And sometimes we can get so busy in the day-to-day -day stresses of life that that meter goes down and down and down, and before you know it, we're so self-absorbed that we forget all about the eternal. And so that's Paul's motivation, and hopefully it's ours as well. And then there's Paul's observations about Israel. And we look, first of all, at Paul says they have zeal without knowledge. Let's look at uh, verse 2 there. For I can testify about them. I can bear witness that they are zealous for God. There is no doubt about that, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. He also said that they perceived God's righteousness as something that was out of their reach. Do you know anybody like that? I could never, ever be right with God. God would not accept me. So the problem is they're zealous for God, but they don't ever think that they can reach God's righteousness. So what do they do? They decide to try on their own. You know, that righteousness that's out there, I'm going to try on my own to do that. Um, in in, Exod in Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14, Paul quotes Moses. Moses said, Now what I'm commanding you today is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend to heaven to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so we may obey it. No, the word of God is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. So Paul draws on what Moses said about, you know, people thinking that God's law is out of their reach, that God's word is out of reach, that I can't go up into heaven and get it, so we need to send somebody there to get it. I can't go across the sea, so is there somebody that can go and get it? And Paul says, look, we, we interpret that as somebody needs to bring Christ down. Well, the bottom line is Christ has already ascended into heaven he rose from the grave, and, and he has provided uh, justification once for all. There's no need for him to come back. That sacrifice has already been made. And then he observes that 
They pursue self-righteousness versus submitting to God's righteousness. Do you know anyone like that? There was a time in my life when that's pretty much how I did things. Even though I was a believer, I was in a very legalistic background, and there was a checklist of things that you do that makes you a good Christian. You may have, you may have been brought up in that kind of environment where it's like, well, if I do these things, I'm a good Christian. If I don't do these things, I'm a bad Christian. And I'm, I need to question my salvation here. But we see that um, this is what they did. They pursued self-righteousness and decided that they were going to try to get to God by good works instead of by faith in the one that he sent. And also, the, the fourth observation that he had about Israel is that they stumbled over Jesus. Look back in chapter 9, the last few verses before our text. Paul says, in verse 32, he's talking about the, the Israelites, and he says, because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Who is that stumbling stone? Who is that rock in Zion? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus came into his own, the Bible says, and his own did not receive him. And so those were his observations about the Israelites. They're zealous for God, but it's a misplaced zealousness. They perceive God's righteousness as something that they can't grasp. They pursue self-righteousness instead of submitting to God's righteousness, and they stumble over Jesus. We know a lot of people like that in our lives. And I think Paul can relate to them because that's what Paul was like. Paul was like that before he came to know Christ. He was zealous for God. Do you remember Paul's testimony before the Sanhedrin? He said, I went around breathing out murderous threats. I took every Christian I could find and put them in prison. Some of them even died. I, held the, I guarded the clothes of Stephen when they stoned him to death for his, his faith in Jesus Christ. He said... I used to be that way, so I can relate to that. And that's why I have a burden for them, because they're missing the mark, but they're so close. The Word of God is, is near them. It's, it's in their heart. It's in their mind. And all they have to do is call on the name of the Lord and be saved. This led us to um, Paul's question and answer with the church. I love this, because after he's laid out his motivation, he's kind of brought these themes into play, He's made observations about Israel. Then he talks to the church. And this is where it really, it really should drive home to you and I what we're to do as the body of Christ. He asked them a question in 14 and 15. Let's look at that. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them and how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Paul asked the question, how can an unbelieving world hear, receive, believe, and call on the Lord? How does he do that, church? He tells us very clearly in his word there. He says, first of all, that we have to embrace our mission, our sentness. You and I are sent. 
When Jesus Christ left this earth, he entrusted the birth of the church to these, these apostles, and he said, you are to be my witnesses, and I will give you power, I will give you authority, but you're going to have to go. Now, wait here in Jerusalem for a little bit, but there's going to be a time when I send you out into the whole world, and it's not going to be easy. You're going to have to sacrifice your lives, your comfort, your family, for the sake of this gospel. And so Paul is reminding the church, you know, we have to embrace our mission. Yes, the word of God is very near them, but somebody's got to go. And, and you were sent. The Holy Spirit has sent you out. And let's be honest. I don't know how long you've attended this church. Do you really consider yourself as one who's sent? Or do you see that as maybe the job of the pastor and the elders, um, that they're the ones who are sent to this community? Or do you see yourself as a messenger every day? So it comes a point where as believers, we have to embrace our mission over our own comfort, our own security, our own ideas of success, and, and really see that we are witnesses and disciples of Jesus Christ. And then he talks to them about taking the initiative. He says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. What, is that, what does that look like in our lives? Not everybody can get up here and preach at a pulpit. Not everybody can go and meet a total stranger and tell them about Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? How do I take the initiative? I think it means something as simple as opening your home to somebody that you know does not know Christ. Opening your heart to friendship with unbelievers. The truth is that the longer I'm a believer, the less unbelieving friends that I have. Because I gravitate toward the body of Christ, and that's, that's great. We need to be a part of that community, but we're also sent. And we're to be the ones to bring it. And the good news about that is the Holy Spirit's already there working ahead of us. And we're just joining God in what he's already doing. And so we have to take the initiative, and then we have to proclaim the message. Proclaim the message. How comfortable are you in sharing the gospel with someone? Is it something that scares you to death? Is it something you find very easy and natural to do? Well, I would tell you the first place we start when we've taken the initiative is to share our faith story or to share the faith story of someone close to us, like that story I shared about Hannah. That warms our heart. It, it, it shares the truth of the gospel message. So we have to proclaim the message. That message is heavenly. In Galatians 1.11 Paul says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer says, This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So here's the point about this message. It's heavenly. It's not a story from earth. It's not something that um, Paul made up and just began to peddle uh, to, to make money. No, this message is from heaven. And Jesus Christ himself introduced it. And it was testified to by witnesses, and then God took 
that those witnesses and provided signs and miracles so that people would be drawn to believe this message. And then the Holy Spirit did his work in distributing to his body the spiritual gifts that enable us to share that message. And that message is not only heavenly, it's also powerful. In Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. That message is powerful. Have you seen that power in your own life? When the gospel is preached, the death, burial, and resurrection, even though you're a believer, does it not encourage your heart? I mean, every time I hear the gospel preached, it never gets old to me. It brings tears to my eyes to think that God himself would condescend and come down to earth for sinful men and women like you and I, and he would, in the person of his son, would live a spotless life and then allow himself to be tortured mercilessly and hung on a cross in, you know, what people would think is embarrassment and shame and then offer his life for me. Who would do that? Only God would do that. And it never gets old to hear that gospel message. And trust me, Paul says, I don't know why, but God chose the foolishness of preaching to make himself known. Whenever somebody hears about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that is packed with all the power of heaven. And I can tell you, no matter how feeble your attempts may seem to you, when you share the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter how nervous you may be, the Holy Spirit is there to take that and empower that message. It stands for its, by itself. All it needs is someone to share it honestly and openly with an unbelieving world. And it's a powerful message. There is no message more powerful than the fact that Christ came as God the Son and died for our sins and offered up himself so that we could be made right with God. The message is also clear. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4, the Apostle Paul speaking to another church body, he says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. There is nothing more important than this message, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Do you realize how wonderful it is that we don't serve a dead guy? We serve a risen Lord. I've been to the tomb in Jerusalem. He is not there. And I don't care which tomb you think is the right one. He's not in either one of them. Friends, I'm here to tell you that the message of Jesus Christ, His crucifixion, His death, His burial, His resurrection, that is a victorious message that we share. Do you realize how what we've been entrusted with? I mean, He gave that powerful clear message to you and I, so clear that my little four-year-old girl could understand it. That's powerful. Something that transformational that even a child could embrace that truth and be brought into God's forever family. Man, why would God do that? Paul says it's because it's his desire that we embrace that righteousness that comes by faith. God wants everyone who calls on his name to be saved. What a loving God. What a long-suffering God because you and I are his enemies until we come to faith in Christ. But the Bible says that we were at enmity with God. 
There was none of us that did right. Not even one. And God persisted. And God came. And God loved. And God died. So that we could be with Him. And that is a clear message. None clearer. It's also a true message. You know, I can stand up here with all the confidence that I can muster and say, this message is true. I believe it to the core of my being. Ever since I was nine years old and asked Jesus into my own life, I have not ceased to believe that this message is true. And hopefully you don't either. I know there's times when we doubt whether that we're, you know, that we're going to go to heaven. I think that's something that, that is part of the human condition. But we cannot doubt its truth. Peter himself, one of the twelve, one of the three apostles that was closest to Jesus and spent most time with him, he said this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard his voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter can stand here and tell the church, I was there. I was there when, I was, when Jesus was transfigured before our eyes. I was there and heard the Father say, this is my son. I, I was there for all of this. It's not something we made up. It's something that has been true from the time the prophets first began to mention it all the way through to now. It is an unbroken thread of the true message of redemption. Did you know that in the first few chapters of Genesis, we see a picture of God's redemption. You remember when Adam and Eve sinned? They ate the forbidden fruit, their eyes were open, and all of a sudden they were not in right relationship with God anymore. What did God do? God took an innocent animal, sacrificed it, shed its blood, so that they could be clothed of their nakedness. That was a picture. That was a picture that one day, you and I and all of our shame and our moral bankruptcy would be able to look to God, to believe in our heart that, he's, that Jesus Christ is Lord, confess with our mouth, and God would take the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and he would clothe us with the righteousness of Christ. We can stand in confidence today that I don't have to earn my salvation. I don't have to struggle to keep my salvation when I gave my life to Jesus Christ and embraced him as my Savior, I was clothed of my nakedness. I put on Christ. I'm a new creation. And when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ that clothes me. Friends, that message is true. It's as true today as it was when the Old Testament prophets began to declare that one day a, a Savior would come who would be the Savior of the world who would provide the sacrifice for our sins. Friends, I, I can tell you this. The message, it's powerful. The message is clear. The message is true. And the message is from heaven.
But the last thing that Paul wants the church to do, he's mentioned these different things that he wants us to do, but the last one is to encourage a response from an unbelieving world. There's got to be a point where there's an invitation. I think you and I are good at building relationships at times with lost people. We're good at, you know, getting to know them and sharing our own story. But there comes a time when we have to take a risk where we have to say, you know, is that something that you would like to do? God has changed my life. You've heard my testimony. Is that something that you would like to do? Sometimes I think we hide behind the fact that, well, they know my story and I try to live it out for them, but we never actually invite them into that relationship with Christ. Friends, most times it needs an invitation. Somebody needs to be encouraged to make a decision. So what about you? As we've looked at this passage of Scripture We've seen Paul lay out these key themes. The relationship of Christ and and the law to righteousness. You know, the relationship of the mouth and the heart to salvation. And the relationship of going and preaching. So what does this mean for Redeemer Church? You know, where are you at in this process? Number one, have you given your life to Jesus Christ? If not, I'm going to be that one to invite you to do that today. I know that uh, Shannon will be back by the glass doors back here and is available. Any of the elders are available to talk to you about a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's one way you can start. But another one is to embrace that sentness. Is your life so self-centered right now that there's no thought of reaching out to the world, of opening your home and your heart, your calendar, to relationships with lost people? Is there somewhere that God is calling you to go? I know that God called us to go to Seattle and we spent three years planning a church up there. God called me to start Latitude to hopefully engage the next generation and disciple them into being spiritual leaders who go out into the world and share the gospel with everyone. Where are you at as a church in that process? How is your community being impacted by the lives and the testimonies of the people sitting in this room? I don't, I don't want anybody to feel guilt about it. I want people to be encouraged to take some risks. And that's what Paul was saying, folks. It doesn't happen. They're not going to hear unless someone goes and preach. The preaching's not going to happen unless someone is sent. So, church, what, what are we waiting for? What is it that God needs to do in your own life to open your heart up to having a vision for the lost world? Maybe you had that vision and the vision has grown cold. Maybe it's time to confess that and ask the Holy Spirit to give you a new desire to share the truth of the message. But I can tell you this, there is nothing like the feeling of helping another person come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, seeing their countenance change, that sense of a burden being lifted, and and seeing them begin to walk with God and grow in Him and be discipled in him. There's nothing like that. Let's get in the game. Let's bring bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. Let's be those sent ones that Paul is really encouraging us to be. Let's pray together. Father God, what a powerful passage of Scripture. Paul lays out a theology of salvation. As he questions the church about how people in their community and their lives come to know you. 
God, would we be convicted by that? Would you give us a burden for our communities, for our relatives that maybe we've given up on, for friends that we know do not know you? May we have a renewed passion and burden for them and be motivated to go out and take some risks and build some bridges and share the message of the gospel. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to do that. We know that the Holy Spirit is already there working. We pray that we would join you in that, dear Father. In Jesus' name, amen.